Happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, Gabe. Happy Halloween. Ha- happy Halloween, Leslie. Happy Halloween, Thank listeners. You. Hello for the spooky Halloween episode of the Katie Halper Show. This is Gabe Pacheco. Gabe, Gabe Dracula. Gabe, the, the, the crypt keeper. Crypt keeper. The grave robber. Grave robber. Cradle robber. No, Whoa. not so much. No, I went there, but <laughs> yeah. he's not. That's uh, like a real life uh, monster. Crime. We're not yeah, going to exactly. end crime. We're yeah. going to stick to the fantasy today. Yeah. And we have as our guest, Leslie Monster Lee. I don't know. I'm trying to throw in some spookiness in there, but Leslie Lee. Oh, thank you so much for having me on again, Katie. Of course, yeah. And Leslie is the co-host of Struggle Session, which is a great podcast. Yeah, they just got t-shirts coming out, too. Oh, nice. I saw that on Twitter. So congrats, yeah. guys. Yeah, patreon.com slash struggle session, pro wrestling tees.com slash struggle session. We got everything you need out there. Great. You yeah. got you got mugs? We got mugs. We gotta get we got you guys gotta get mugs and we gotta get t shirts. I was just thinking that we need t shirts. That's right. Let's get this uh the aesthetic yeah. out there. Yeah, we're we're gonna have some vape pins coming out probably. I think our, our listeners are more vapors than uh, coffee drinkers. Oh, got it. I'm a real coffee real coffee addict. On the East Coast, man, we're we're over here just uh, chewing vibrans. Don't sleep. <laughs> just stay up late, stay up all night watching uh Halloween movies. That's right. I'm I'm putting nodos in my lucky charms. I'm eating those late at night, uh, trying to watch as many horror movies as possible before October 31st or after, depending on when we release this. The week <laughs> of, we like to watch them the week of. But let's talk first about Halloween costumes. You guys grow up seeing any like offensive costumes? Have you ever encountered any? I've never had my feelings hurt by costumes I've seen in in real life, but I've always grown up in cities, so you know. Uh, I, I I wonder where right you know this happens yeah because exactly. I think in a city you're gonna get checked pretty quickly if you go out there and, and you're wearing something like ex- explicitly right. offensive. Right. What about you, Leslie? So funny story. So I do, if anyway remembers being online around maybe 2003 2004 and like the first wave of articles like calling out white people for how they dress. Um, there was probably a, you might have seen a piece or maybe just an image post of white people at a party dressed, trying to dress like ghetto. Yeah. Um, I know all those people from like that first round of stuff. It was a party, like, I think in New Orleans or Baton Rouge, where they would dress up like as, you know, ghetto black people. And I knew all those people. You mean you literally knew these people? Like, or no, you yeah, know oh, these types of people? No, literally knew the people who were in like that first in when the early waves of calling this stuff out. Yeah, I literally knew these people, hung out with these people, party with these people. Some of these people were actually my friends uh, uh, back in the back in my DJ and rave days. So what do you remember any of these like offensive costumes or did you block them out? It would just be like, what would a white person in like 2001 would think is stereotypically black? There was nothing creative about it. It was just like dressing like whatever the rappers of the time dressed like. That was maybe the rappers of three years ago because, you know, some they were a little bit behind in the times. But yeah. 
and they were really shocked at the attention they got and a little bit hurt and offended. They didn't understand. They thought they were just celebrating um, black culture. Halloween and culture. And they just didn't get it, didn't understand. Even a couple of years later, it was like, because they they would do the party like annually. It would be like a, I forget what they call it. It wasn't literally a dress up like that people party but it, it was they call it, they had some you know clever punny name for it and they would have it annually until like this article happened and they were like okay i guess we can't do that anymore because they would post the pictures online and like it's fun and stuff like it like any other party I, I i don't know if people if kids these days know anything about the rape scene but a big thing was every party people would go around take a bunch of photos and then post them all online hell well, yeah those <laughs> and those photos um, would make their way around and this, these photos made their way around and people um, got a little bit pissed off at them for it. So were ravers like social media, entre like trailblazers? Oh, yeah. 1,000%. Every single social media movement, ra uh, ravers were first on until, strangely enough, Twitter. Ravers huh. ne never really got to Twitter for some reason. Well, is it... You can even yeah, I feel like because raving isn't uh, the most literary genre <laughs> subculture, you know? Right. Yeah, but message boards, live journal, MySpace, oh, huge with journal. the rave scene. Yeah, even and and even Facebook, too. Big, big, big ravers. None of the ravers understood Twitter, unfortunately. Or wokeness. No, they did not understand wokeness. So well, it was just about plur, uh, peace, love, unity, respect. And oh. so if you ever actually talked openly about things like racism, you were kind of just harshing everyone's vibe, dude. Because I was a black raver, one of the few. And like I would always talk about, you know, how racism is bad. Like I could have spared these people this online um, embarrassment they're facing. Some of them have pretty good jobs now. So I hope uh, no one uh, goes digging back and finds some of this stuff wow. with them, you know, dressed up like hood with like um, tinfoil uh, under their teeth for you know, to show that they have, you know, gold fronts right. or whatever. Grills. Grills, right? Is there a link to this, by the way? Oh, I don't know if it's, it, it's, it might not still be up. Um, it would be, it, it was like 15 years ago, which is like 100 years in internet time. You probably need like an internet archaeologist uh, in order to find it. It was on the message boards that we, the little raver message board we had. It was a long, long time ago. What, what years were you going to raves? <laughs> oh, so... 2000 to um i guess i, I want to say 2007 but i feel like it was really died down back then you couldn't really call them raves anymore I, yeah i think i was going in like uh 90 96 97 98 and then uh and that was like right when uh the plur started erupting uh as as a sort of a reaction to to um too many uh, altercations on the dance floor mostly over drugs yes yeah lots of all, pretty much all the drama around the, there was tons of drama in the rave scene believe it or not all involving usually involving drugs relationships you you bring all those things together at like 3 a.m in the old theater and just shit happens but uh, but I think you're right about the early adopting with technology. Uh, I I'd love to see a collection of uh a, like a book of all of the old flyers for uh, oh yeah for parties because because I feel like that's where everyone learned their graphic designing. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and those early flyers all look like screensavers, or yeah, the 3D graphics all <laughs> twisted up. And sometimes people don't get they don't get the cultural appropriation stuff that it goes in one way and not the other. So they'll do this false equivalence. They're like, can a black person not be James Bond, or can a black person not be Mozart? But I don't think anyone's ever been like offended or problematized a black person being Mozart because there's yeah, not like then- a lot of Mozart phobia. And yeah, and also black people generally don't put on white face to dress up as a white character. They just put on the costume. Like you can dress up as a black, you know, character or celebrity. Just, you know, don't wear blackface, which apparently Megyn Kelly on her NBC show um, was defending wearing blackface. This year, the costume police are cracking down like never before. But what 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 is racist? Because because truly, you do get in trouble if you are a white person who puts on blackface on Halloween or a black person who puts on whiteface for Halloween. There was a controversy on The Real Housewives of New York with Luann as she dresses Diana Ross and she made her skin look darker than it really is. And people said that that was racist. And I don't know, I felt like, who doesn't love Diana Ross? She wants to look like Diana Ross for one day. I, I don't know how like that got racist on Halloween. Was- on the Today Show, like she forgot that she wasn't on Fox News anymore. Just like NBC forgot that she was a white supremacist when they hired her. There's so many out there, yeah. Well, I think we're going to have this war every single year so we can dust off the same top 10 uh, list of uh, white people appropriating a different culture and making an offensive costume. Uh, Just like for every year moving forward, we're going to have a war on Christmas. This is going to be the war on white people uh, wearing sombreros. You can't wear anything Mexican based. No sombrero, no maracas. Oh, yeah. Gabe, how do you feel about sombreros? I could care less. You had a great <laughs> costume, by the way. Were you Wes Craven? Is that what it was as a little kid? I was Freddy Krueger every year for like five or six years. <laughs> really? Which is ironic because Freddy is was such a beloved character uh, among children. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yet he is uh, he's the ultimate a predator of children mm. say so he's a child killer but um but for whatever reason stockholm syndrome we loved him we loved him so much <laughs> yeah i couldn't get enough i understand how prophecy works or when somebody comes back like in religions when somebody comes back down from the mountain with uh with a special message from the lord uh because that's kind of like the first kid in elementary school whose parents let them watch rated r movies yeah. Because that kid comes back to school on a Monday morning and says, you wouldn't believe what I saw. There's a oh, character. Yes. He comes in your dreams. He was burned mm-hmm. alive and his name is Freddy. And and as a child, you're like, what? Tell me more. And, and you fill in the blanks and you kind of create this myth that's even bigger than the film could possibly be. Just hearing secondhand the story. Oh, hell yeah. I, I still remember conversations when I was five about hearing about Terminator or Predator, all this stuff we weren't supposed to watch before we saw it. And then I would just wait till it hits like HBO and watch it. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. And I, I think that that, that oral tradition <laughs> is still alive and well. And it's and the bards that uh, keep that alive for us are our children <laughs> in uh, kindergarten, first grade and second grade. Uh, that come from broken homes <laughs> or are latchkey yeah. kids. <laughs> and and it's better than the films themselves is the mythology yes. that you get to build around them before you see them. Yes. <laughs> Did you improve your, your, your Freddy Krueger costume or was it just like a solid? It was same? solid. 
Like, did every year you have it more flair or like understand the character on a I, deeper level? I kept the glove in a uh, a, a nice stained oak uh, wooden box. Nice. With a felt interior. Uh-huh. And then I would just pull it out from under my race car bed every year, dust it off, open it up and uh, put that little plastic bladed glove back on. Did your parents like it? Were they scared? Did they think it was cute? Was it like a purge? Actually, we can get to the purge well, thing, but was it like catharsis? They thought you? they thought it was fun, but I have to say, my first experience with horror movies was uh, when we got our first VCR, and my mother is, was very um, left-leaning, and uh, I wanted to rent a uh, Chuck Norris movie, mm. like Invasion USA, and she said, no, you can't watch any of these jingoistic, ah. uh, violent films that are sort of where America is right. good and imperialist. US exceptionalism and all that. American, do you hear me? I want to talk to you. American, I want to negotiate. Do you hear me, American? Loud and clear. All that. So uh, so I said, okay, well, how about I get this Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, and the only one they had was part two. Mm. So I'm like seven years old. <laughs> and she's like, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a movie that's a fantasy. No problem. Right. So little did any of us know how uh, sort of mind warping uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 will be for a seven-year-old boy. It sounds so family funnish. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! No! But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. Dad! Help! Daddy can't help you now. Freddy Krueger is back on Elm Street. Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. Freddy's revenge. <laughs> so that was, and that was my intro, my entry to Freddy as well. It wasn't the first film; it was the second one, which is uh, an amazing, surreal uh, exploration of um, of homosexuality through the lens of horror. Ah, so it's it's yes. all about coming out and what do I have to do to make you understand me? The fears of what's inside of us. Fred Krueger. He's inside me, and he wants to take me again. And homophobia. and Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. I don't know. Hmm. So I, I didn't get all of these subtle... <laughs> Not until eight. The first time, the first year you... Yeah, I hadn't out. taken my gender studies classes right. yet in elementary school. We right. hadn't upgraded to that, so I wasn't quite aware. I just knew that everything in this movie was... Uh, uh, challenging everything that I knew. Right. It'd be funny if like you're sitting in your college like class sociology and, at Bard or whatever and like a light bulb goes off in your head. You have a flashback of something from a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, coming out of the closet. It's yeah. just like uh, Freddy bursting out of this guy's body in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. I uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, I feel like a Philistine when it comes to horror movies and science fiction films. But for whatever reason, it takes me a lot to enjoy something that has any fantasy built into it. I respect them. I know that they're smart, right? I know Ray Bradbury is very smart and very political. With science fiction, there's like a lot of room for critique because you can say things that won't get you censored. 
because you're talking kind of in code or you make it more accessible when it's when it's science fiction. If you wrote a book or made a movie that was like the current president is evil and locking people up in jails for not doing anything. Censors wouldn't like it. People would maybe find it too disruptive, if you will. Right. But if you do it in like another land or a magical land or in the future, it seems more permissible. Is I think fantasy, sci-fi, and horror, basically any genre um, type story has that advantage of it kind of gets past uh, uh, certain people's walls right. because they're coming in um, not really expecting a, a message and so that makes it easier to deliver one. In right. in horror, you can talk about issues that you can't talk about in other movies. Like uh, as Gabe was just talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, Two, all uh, very you know um, for lack of a better term, gay film, but it's a well, it was a mainstream sequel to a mainstream movie that was a hit. Uh, that wasn't something that you know was really happening. Like the second Indiana Jones, uh, the second you know Indiana Jones wasn't like a uh, like a gay version of Indiana Jones, but Nightmare on Elm Street was because it, it was uh, it was even like further into that you know genre uh, thing where people weren't really expecting a message, so they didn't you know put their walls up. They weren't saying this isn't for you can't say this in this kind of film because right. it's for kids or for everybody like no they could kind of do what they want with it you know what's funny speaking of like not expecting stuff or like going by very strict definitions in spain under franco there was censorship obviously and they had this famous example of a movie where a man and a woman were having an affair and they didn't want that so they turned them into brother and sister so it went from like adultery to incest kind of uh, so it got more extreme? It got more extreme, but I guess kind of more Catholic, less like family <laughs> uh, challenging or something, less oh. family values. They kept in the family at least. But um, I always feel like uh, if somebody tells me this is a very important film and you need to see it, right. so it's it's going to be uh, viewed by the Academy and uh, rated in that way, then it's probably a super milquetoast movie that just uh, replicates and supports the current the status quo. And yes. with something like horror or when it's schlocky or when it's dismissed by the Academy, that's when it actually has the cover, the darkness, um, right. where it can where it can be important and uh, it can actually reach the masses. Yeah. Did you guys see the movie Three Kings with um, Mark Wahlberg and Ice Cube and George Clooney? Seen, did you guys see that? I've seen it on like TNT yeah. before. I don't know how much attention I paid to it. But uh, it, it has pretty good politics. It does, I would, yeah. And I think it has good politics in a way that like aren't too explicit. What is your rank, bro? Sergeant First Class, 437 Civil Affairs Company, U.S. Army Reserve. My man, man, tell me something, okay? What is the problem with Michael Jackson? What do you mean? What is the problem with Michael Jackson, the king of pop? Woohoo! It is so obvious. A black man made the skin white and the hair straight, and you know why? No. You sick fucking country make the black man hate himself just like you had the Arab and the children you bomb over here. I don't hate children. Kind of humanizes Iraqis, and of course I'm setting a low bar because that shouldn't be radical politics, but sadly it is. Do they care, buddy? Does who care? Do you army care about the children in Iraq? Do they come back to help? 
No, they're not coming. You bombed my family, do you know that? You blow up my home, the Wall Street. My wife is crushed by a big fucking block of concrete. She loses her legs. Dog legs cut off now. That's horrible. Oh my God, buddy, I didn't even tell you the horrible part yet. My son, my son was killed in his bed. He is one year old. He is sleeping with his daughter when the bomb come. I have a daughter. Very nice for you, bro. She's safe without the bomb, the concrete, and all this shit. How old is she? One month old. What's her name? Crystal. What makes you decide to tell me about Crystal, my man? Well, because we're both fathers. I'm not father no more, do you remember? My son is dead now. Can you think how it feel inside your heart if I bomb your daughter? Worse than death. That's right. Worse than death. But I, I always think that, like, that's such a good thing to, to do because we can all see an art house movie that, that challenges race and presents it as a, you know, a social construction. But that'll be in, like, 12 theaters, like, if you're lucky, around the entire world and universe and galaxy. You know, and, like, a pop, very popular movie like this, I think, can do, obviously, do really well. But I think The Purge is a good example of what we just recently yeah. talking about. Yeah. Because these are, they've done, what, four movies now and a TV series of explicitly anti-racist anti-capitalist anti-status quo films that people are just watching and absorbing and they all have been successful without like a backlash to it without and because they are able to you know dress it up in this horror conceit where what if one night crime was legal tonight allows people a release for all the hatred and violence that they keep up inside them. It is a night that is defining our country. Citizens, this will be a tradition we celebrate every year. Join the first purge. People are now calling this controversial experiment of legalized crime the purge. Do not purge! Do not purge! This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the first purge. Our neighborhood is under siege from a government who doesn't give a shit about any of us. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. All emergency services will be suspended. Your government thanks you for your participation. And and, and they and they really do another clever thing too. Like they advertise the movies as kind of these right wing fantasies. Like which is like, you know, kind of baseline for America. I, I don't even want to say right wing fantasies because I feel like liberals kind of have to uh, believe this sort of thing too, where, you know, if we didn't have the police, if we didn't have prisons, then crime would just run amok and we would have all be out for themselves. And these movies say, no, 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 that's not the case. Most people, especially Uh poor people, explicitly poor black and Latino people, if we did not have the police or the prisons, like the worst thing we would do is like throw block parties, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's the the crime that um, is what's happened. And that's the crime that everyone does when without, you know, government intervention. But when... But in the purge films, what they, what happens is that they, the ruling party starts uh, 
thrown these purges and then nobody does any violence. Nobody wants to purge. Right. And they want the purges to happen to eliminate the lower classes. Yeah. So can and you so, can you set up um, you have this great piece called In Reality Every Night is Purge. It was at Truth Dig. Can you just set up for people what the the plot is for people who haven't seen it? Spoiler alert, you're going to hear it. Also, if you haven't seen it, Wikipedia and reviews on Gabe YouTube really exist. really is not like when we when we handhold for our audience, but Yeah, so it basically the um the premise of the purge is that once a year, uh once a one time every year in America for one night, cr- all crime is legal. You can do whatever you want. No police will stop you. You are not held accountable. And they do this um, ostensibly because they feel like there is a psychological um, value to it. Um, they say that it helps drop. It helps, you know, reduce crime. It's good for people to purge. They can get out all their negative emotions in one night and then go and spend the rest of the year as good citizens. And the films really explore. So what does this actually mean for people? Well, it means first thing is if you're rich, you're going to spend a bunch of money on high power weapons and bunkers and just laying your house out. So you have you don't have to worry about anybody attacking you on purge night. You're fine. You're good. And you and in the first film, it follows a family who he sells the security systems to the neighborhood. And he's a support. It starts off at the protagonist. He's a supporter of the purge. He believes in this, you know. Uh, ideology behind it, even though he right. doesn't participate in it, uh, but he can protect right. himself. And so, but what ends up happening is that a homeless uh, black man who ends up being the moral center of the film, a it's a good, it's a positive portrayal, extremely positive portrayal of a homeless person in the film, which you almost never see outside of, you know, sentimental right. uh, narratives. He's a homeless uh, black man and he becomes kind of the heart of the film because the family, uh, he, lets him in he lets him in while he's being while the homeless black fan is being attacked and chased uh by these white prep school kids these rich people uh mm-hmm. rich kids and the rich kids tell the uh the protagonist played by uh, ethan hawk that you know we don't want to hurt your family but it's our right to kill this black man and beat him up and he had the audacity to fight back so you have to let him out or you're going to be accountable too and it, it's kind of that cat and mouse between uh them but the but the main thing is it's like when people when people first heard about the purge film they assumed that it was going to be just this you know right-wing fantasy that if you know we didn't have laws we didn't have cops everybody would just kill each other and but that's not what they said they said if we didn't have laws we didn't have caught cops um rich people would just kill the poor that's what that's what that's what it is that's what really happens it's funny because like the uh, the uh, wealthy have this Hobbesian view of uh, what's going to happen in a state of anarchy and what, but poor people, they have more of a, it's, it's actually more utopian or sort of uh, that everyone would share, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it, it turns into Burning Man until right. the wealthy show up with their guns and that, uh, it's this film is also to me like an indictment against uh, like libertarianism because if you say if you say well we're all free to do whatever we want then the people with money are going to still be able to amass a private army yeah it's the illusion yeah. of like of a level playing field which is i think what always goes into libertarianism it's this idea that you know it's it's like the invisible hand 
No, the government intervenes to give multinational corporations some hookups, right? And in this case, no, the rich people ha- are able to buy protection or buy them buy their way out of participating in a way that poor people can't. But what I, I so I saw the purge. The I guess it's the first purge. It's from it's the most recent one, yeah. right? It's the prequel. Yes, yes, okay, it's I the saw prequel, that one, but- and it's with Marissa Tomei. Love Marissa Tomei. Yeah, she's great. Love her. She went to Kinderland to comic camp. How about that? Yeah. Van Jones is in it. Has a nice cameo in it. Yes. Van Jones. As um, Van Jones. <laughs> as Van Jones. Van Jones as himself. Starring Van Jones as himself. It's interesting what you said about how it looks like a a right-wing film. Because it almost, I mean, it's it comes off at the beginning. It seems almost like exploitation. Yeah. Like a exploitation film, right? And like one of the earliest characters is a guy named Skeletor. Not to be confused yeah, Skeletor. with Tom Perez, DNC chair Tom Perez, who has his own Skeletor look. It is subversive because at first, like at first glance, it looks like it's just like, oh, look at this this movie about all these crazy, violent black people. And then you are, you learn that, like as you were saying, Leslie, there isn't this natural embrace of violence. It's actually that they send in Blackwater. Blackwater. Type. They, their logo is pretty much Blackwater. They all ex-military. Something funky going down, D. They send in all these mercenaries because no one, none of the regular folk, they're just having parties. They're just hanging out. So they have to send in these Blackwater people to go and basically slaughter um, black and brown people across uh, Long Island. The ones Staten who Island. couldn't afford to leave. Uh, Staten Island, no. excuse me. Don't be island who, uh, <laughs> who couldn't afford to leave or um, accepted the $5,000 a payment to participate in the experiment. This was the first purge, so it was uh, framed as an experiment, and they offered people $5,000 to participate, which I thought was really powerful in the film because in almost no other movie is $5,000 presented as, like, life-changing. But that's what the characters in here actually meant talk about and i feel like most white people in america wouldn't consider five thousand dollars life-changing but it would be to uh a lot of black and brown people right poor people that's explicitly mentioned in this film and and in contrast to all the films where you where like every character is like an ad executive or works in publishing and like like we're inundated with these films of people who live in New York with these massive apartments and they can just fly back and forth around the country to break up and make up with their boyfriends. And right. Girlfriends. Every rom-com yeah, exactly. has a, a main character that's an architect yeah. who's dating a uh, an advert, a publisher. Who has the time and resources to intervene a plane when it's <laughs> about to leave. Um, well, yeah, it's interesting because I was going to say when you said that, Leslie, it's like, yeah, usually it would have to be a million dollars. But then it's like one of those things where it's not even about the amount of money, right? It's like the quality and quantity issue. Like there's a difference between a life where you need to do something. In other words, it's not like whatever $5,000 is for someone much richer, it doesn't serve the same purpose. Like, because in one in one case, it's life-changing, right? Like let's say $5,000 yeah. is the same percentage of your of your wealth, whatever the equivalent is for a rich person, it doesn't serve the same function yeah. because your your needs are already being met. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's no amount of money you could get to get, you know, a well-off person to participate 
in a in a purge if they don't want to. And that's kind of explicitly pointed out in all the films because what we see in film and film again, you know, the suburbs they lock down, they build themselves fortresses unless they want to um, participate in it. If but people in the cities, people in the apartments, people in the hood, like they just get slaughtered like they they have no means to protect themselves and they right. have they have no they they don't have the and they don't have the uh, means to participate in the purge if they want to like there's a scene and i believe uh the second or third film where you know the uh creepy neighbor uh tries to assault uh, a woman but then he's come along but then like a mercenary comes along and just shoots him in the head. It's like, no, the purge isn't for uh, this poor Hispanic uh, violent guy. It's for, you know, the wealthy and the people who have some, even if you're a bad person who happens to be poor, the purge isn't for you either. The ultimate goal is it's a, it's a very calculated way to cull the, the poor and the working class. And they say this in the film. They explicitly <laughs> say this in these films, in these popular mainstream films. They say they say that the government is trying to kill off all the black and right. poor people. If you look at, you know, capitalism always needs uh, a workforce. And they need a workforce, but they need to have a surplus of workers who are unemployed to keep wages down and to keep everybody in competition. Like this divide is, and conquer and... Yeah, this is a way, the purge is like just the way to keep, to regulate the population. There's a scene where Marissa Tomei like finds out what they are up to, right? She realizes she's like a psychiatrist or psychologist, Marissa Yeah, Tomei. she's kind of, so Marissa Tomei's character is interesting because she's not really, because she is a true believer in this, but like just her science is bunk. And she's being uh, used by the ruling party to give an excuse to call um, the population. It's like, so her character is kind of strange because, like, you're supposed to, like, because she comes up with the purge, but she does it for, like, pure reasons. Like, she right. actually thinks that this will improve society. We are here with Dr. May Updale. She came up with this experiment. Is the purge a political device? It is a psychological one. If we want to save our country, we must release all our anger in one night. If everybody can just, you know, like purge all their negative emotions. But she is a true scientist. She didn't. She was upset when she saw that. Um, it required the numbers intervention. Were being, or, yeah. Yeah, we're being cooked. You're sending soldiers into the island disguised as citizens. This country needs for this to work. So yeah, she's kind of. I was just thinking, she just reminds me of like anybody that believes in the meritocracy. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. sort of like <laughs> a, a neoliberal, like, uh, like I went to the best school. I went to Harvard. I'm a Chicago boy. I studied economics. Like, let's go and take these ideas and impose them on a poor population and see what happens. Yeah, it's like it's like a pro, what are they, the progressives, but not prog like capital P progressives, like the very paternalistic helping the poor, but in a pathologizing way, obviously. Let's sterilize them yeah, so that basically, they don't have a lot of to kids. To protect them from themselves, right? <laughs> yeah. It hurts me more than it hurts you. But it's interesting because, or she also reminded me kind of of a libertarian, like a combo of a libertarian, like humanitarian interventionist or something who... Because the idea is that, like you were saying, Leslie, she's a true believer because she believes that people really do want to purge. So you can yeah. see that from her perspective, 
it's a kind of Machiavellian thing, but you can see from her perspective, it's like on a cost benefit analysis, if people need to purge and you're providing them with this outlet, you can see how that's a good thing. But what she learns, right, is that people on their own aren't doing this and it requires these like Blackwater mercenary types or, or just people who are paid. Um, like there's a range, right? Like kind of low level random John Doe's who do it for the money or there are like high level trained military types who do it. Yes. And when she sees that that's required, it kind of changes her, the framework of it because it's no longer providing this kind of needed service for catharsis. It's actually creating the need for it. And she gets very upset. And then she learns, you know, the, that the point of this is to, as you were saying, Gabe, wipe out a population. Like the, the guy from the, What's it, the NFNF is, I the guess. The New Founding Fathers. Yeah, the New Founding. And, and, the Republicans. Yes, the Republicans. <laughs> um, they are like, no, we just, we're overpopulated. So obviously we have to get rid of of our, of some of the population. Which is, just, it's interesting because like a lot of people, even liberals, think that the issue is that we're overpopulated. As opposed to the issue is like the distribution of resources and wealth. Yeah, the one knock against the politics of um, the first purge, and I don't really think it's a really fair to hold them accountable for it, is that there's no one, no one pushes back against the overpopulate the statement of overpopulation. But it it does come from like the fascist ruling party, right? So, yeah, it's kind of maybe, implicitly, right? Like rejected. Yeah. It's not explicitly like there's no lecture about the distribution of resources, but uh, we could do that. We should make a trailer for like the purge explainer, a Vox explainer from (laughs) Beth Purge. (laughs) So you just mentioned, by the way, you just said Republicans. So so this is shifting gears a little bit, but it's kind of related. You're someone who was like a a proudly Bernier bus, correct? Uh, Yes, Okay. pretty much, yeah. So what is the, I was having this discussion with someone the other day, and it's like, I think that there's a difference between Republicans and Democrats. But it's not a big enough difference. And, you know, I noted you said they're Republicans, right? You didn't say that they're just like neolibs or part of the duopoly. But how do you hold those two ideas in your head at the same time? They're not that contradictory. I'm just curious what your kind of vision of it is as someone who thinks a lot about this and someone who's like viciously critical of the Democrats. And you were an open Jill Stein supporter, right? Yeah. uh, Which is not like a, it's not like a, Obviously, we're we had her on the show, Jill Stein. I'm just curious what your view of all of this this stuff is. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there's no Jill Stein in the Purge universe. They right. actually, it, they're in they the third her. movie. They they have a Hillary Clinton type figure, and it's the movie with the worst politics because it's very like reformist. Right. And, <laughs> and, and there's but there's kind of hints at the end of the film that like that actually is not effective. It doesn't sure. stop, you know the fascists like uh like i I just said that they were republicans because that's what the party is basically there is a kind of like a democratic party in the purge uh universe who wants to stop the purge but like um i think matt chrisman came up with a when he was on our show came up with a, a brilliant concept for it like what you should actually see instead of her like she would you know cancel the purge but then they would just start repealing like different aspects of the anti-purge law until it comes all the way back just like the uh, ACA that's that's probably right. what would really happen because there was there is like an armed revolutionary force 
um, in the purge uh, universe, and they all get killed because of the Democrat, basically, because of Hillary Clinton right. uh, during the course of the film. So they're neutered by the uh, moderates, right? Yes. Which we see time and time again, yeah. And what, you know, Leslie, in case listeners don't know, we first met online. Um, Leslie created this Bernie made me white hashtag, which was very funny, but also very important. Do you still get a lot of, you know, it's getting called white, <laughs> being called white? Get- yeah. And has that changed at all? Like, do you st- always get that? Has the, the, the tenor of that conversation changed or is it still like you are to the left of Hillary? You are either self-loathing or white and pretending not to be white. I don't know. I feel like I somehow fell out of that Twitter. I'm not sure how it wasn't deliberate. So I don't quite get the uh, I don't get like a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters like jumping in my mentions anymore. I just haven't been interact. I don't know if they all blocked me, but it's it's been a few months since I've had a good uh, scrap with any of them. So but I don't think they've gotten any better. If I think that's a better answer to your question. I don't I don't because obviously Bree still deals with it. And there's this one um, um Prom, uh, kind of prominent black writer who writes about race a lot um, who when it comes to anything dealing with class like she just has no concept up and has kind of admitted this but still wants to lecture the left about talking about class uh, too much instead just of it. just race, race which is just bizarre unhelpful and like useless like you know you can't just I mean like the big thing to uh, this week was some um, student came out with a paper that proved that Trump voter that they think proved that Trump voters voted for Trump because they're racist. Uh-huh. And I'm like, um, we've been saying you've been saying for decades that all white people are racist. Right. So um, so what, what what's the news there? Like, yes, white people who voted for Trump were racist. So were the white people who voted for uh, Hillary Clinton. So were the white people who voted for Barack Obama. That's not an excuse for losing to Donald Trump. If Barack Obama could win over enough of the racist votes to win, so should Hillary Clinton have. She should have done the same thing. I mean, as a racist herself, she should have had an (laughs) easier time (laughs) to win over the votes of some segment of white racists than Barack Obama did. How unpopular do you have to be to alienate your own base of racists? Yeah, I, I, I just don't get that sort of that apologia for and and it's just like did you see that even broad city has said like no hillary clinton should not run again oh good we have we have to leave that in the past if your plan is to run a candidate who can't do better than hillary clinton who can't learn from her mistakes and your plan is to lose leslie i found my halloween costume man it's a zombie hillary 2020 yeah. Oh, so, yes. That's a, uh, yeah. The ghost of Hillary keeps coming back. Yeah. True horror story is the idea of Hillary Clinton running again. Talk about 2020 in a minute. Do you want to run again? No. Wait. No. That was a pause. Well, I, well, I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because it, at the, in the, in the her you know 2016 campaign was a zombie campaign. Right. This is you know things that she has said and her own campaign have said 
themselves that they never had a message for why she was running. We have confused everybody in the world, including ourselves. And <laughs> we have confused our friends and our enemies. Uh, so the work would be work that I feel very well prepared for, having been in the Senate for eight years, having been a diplomat uh, in the State Department. And like she was just a lifeless corpse walking around running for president because she had run for president before and had been running for president for the past, you know, 20 years, basically, since Bill Clinton left White House. It was just, you know, this corpse being automated by this one desire. But instead of uh, brains, it was president. And it and like, you know, people didn't want to vote for the zombie people didn't want to come out and vote for the zombie <laughs> yeah they're zombophobic enough. it's not even misogyny it's it's anti-zombieism if, if you're choosing between like the frankenstein and the zombie you're always gonna go with the frankenstein because uh, that's interesting least, yeah that's a really good metaphor actually because you're saying like the frankenstein has a personality yeah at least yeah at least the frankenstein has a personality he's cobbled one together yeah exactly <laughs> yes. i think her slogans being her unofficial slogans um are perfect which are I'm, uh, what is it, ready for Hillary, and I'm with her? Like, the most substance-free, value-free, like, just hagiographical, biographical thing. Well, they can now start taking, like, uh, Friday the 13th sequel titles, like Hillary Lives. Yeah. <laughs> or Hillary X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hillary Takes Manhattan. Follow that, Hillary. <laughs> Throw in some big birds. Yeah, I know. That's really scary. By the way, speaking of nightmares, you saw that she was interviewed um, by, I think, a, a guardian, uh, someone at The Guardian about, of course, because Me Too is still relevant and the Clintons are still traveling around and doing their thing. And someone asked about Monica Lewinsky and she oh. and whether um, the relationship between Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky was an abuse of power. There are people who look at the incidents of the 90s and they say a president of the United States cannot have a consensual relationship with an intern. The power imbalance is too great. Who was great. an adult. But let me ask you this. Where's the investigation of the current incumbent against whom numerous allegations have been made and which he dismisses, denies, and ridicules? So there was an investigation, and it, as I believe, came out in the right place. And in retrospect, do you think Bill should have resigned, President Clinton should have resigned in the 90s in the wake of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Absolutely not. So it wasn't an abuse of power. No. And her response was no, she was an adult. Which I feel like that's just a really bad answer. Like, I really expected her to have some line from Bill Clinton that was some kind of dodge. Like, it yeah. was a long time ago, blah, 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 blah. But that to me, and I don't really get how her listener, how her supporters can like stand by that because you can't really talk yourself out of defining a relationship between the most powerful man on the entire planet, who would be the president of the United States and a 22 year old intern there. If that's not an abuse of power, I think that's kind of a charitable read, right? There are other people who are like, well, what kind of consent do you have when it's when it's that dynamic? But to be charitable, it's an abuse of power, right? Like, don't anyone who's not a misogynist or whose who's love of Hillary and Bill Clinton doesn't denature them and d distort them into, like, just hateful beasts would have to admit that there is an abuse of power there.
This is all just tribalism. There, she's defending Bill because that's what the Clintons do. They defend themselves. Yeah. Um, people who like Hillary will defend her, while at the same time being just as being rightfully, you know, angry at someone like uh, Kavanaugh right. or Clarence Thomas for similar things. Like, it's not about like logic or what's right. What, well, did you see Bill Clinton response to that when Craig Melvin on MSNBC asked him about it? Was this when he he was doing his book tour? Yes, exactly. Looking back on what happened then, through the lens of Me Too now, do you do you think differently or feel? More responsibility? No, I felt terrible then. And I came to grips with it. Did and you ever apologize no, and to no, Yes, and nobody believes that I got out of that for free. I left the White House $16 million in debt. But you typically have ignored gaping facts in describing this, and I bet you don't even know them. Oh, yeah, I did see that one. That one is so good because so James Pat because James Patterson was there, and because they were supposed to be right, doing the a book together. Yeah. Not well. Neither Bill Clinton nor James Patterson wrote a single word of that book. Oh, really? James. I mean, James Patterson has a team of writers. Okay. So yeah. James Patterson is sitting there. He thought like, oh, this was just going to be some easy money. I right. tell my team of writers to write from Bill Clinton's perspective. I get to go on tour with the former president of the United States and that's where he ends up just sitting there completely baffled and uncomfortable right. and ignored for a book because he didn't write a book with this man like right. it's right. amazing he didn't even write it. yeah well it's funny and he's like that's a long time ago like he tries to defend him I think this thing has been it's 20 years ago come on let's talk about JFK let's talk about you know LBJ stop already he's like annoyed that he's being asked about that but that's fo that's funny he, it's he didn't even write it poor guy it's really funny because there's i'm looking at a photo right now of of bill and james patterson and he has his hands like it looks like he's like sh showing bill clinton what a, a woman's large breasts look like he's kind of making oh. like two looks like he is cupping something and of course in the actual novel there's like a, a description of a woman's breasts uh, which they refer to as girls, like a woman's girls. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did a reading of, like, the first couple of chapters, and it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Like, I, I, I still don't know why nobody has mentioned that in the novel that Bill Clinton wrote, you know, kind of about himself, his wife is dead. <laughs> she yeah. died. Look, yeah. What? It's a mercy like killing. It's like an SNL skit of what Bill Clinton would have done after he left the White House. This is right. like he actually did that. His, Hillary Clinton is dead in the book that Bill Clinton wrote about himself. That is amazing. That is pretty good. Yeah. I wonder if she cared about that. She was probably <laughs> like, this, this is his if I did it. Yeah. Right. If I did it. I know he had a conversation with her. And I know he smooth talked her into it. Hey, what baby, look, I just think it'd be best for both of us if uh, you weren't in this book. I mean, for your own political aspirations. <laughs> hey, I'm doing this for you. You've got to be six feet in the grave before you can become <laughs> zombie Hillary 2020. Yeah, exactly. Before the rebirth. Now, look, this story is going to need some romance in it. And uh, the only way that's going to happen is if you're out of the picture. <laughs> Oh, my God. All right. Uh, well, 
Well, speaking of uh, dead wives, I think we all watched a really great movie. Oh, about yeah, great, that transition. Yeah. About a wife who ended up dead by the end, unfortunately. We don't know. If they, like were they common law? Common law wife? Good civil question. partnership? Good question. Uh, roommates? Lovers? Mandy. To hear us discuss Mandy, the Nicolas Cage movie, with Leslie Lee, and to hear our chat about Ronald Reagan, hippie punching, and Lionel Roach's penis, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That bonus episode will be ready by the end of the week. You'll also get to hear us play another round of Would You Rather Desert Island. This time we answer whether we would rather be stuck on a desert island for the rest of our lives with Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan. And of course, you get all sorts of goodies and bonus episodes and extended interviews when you support our Patreon. But don't go anywhere. We have a special announcement from Leslie Lee coming up. Well, great. Anything else you want to make sure we mention, we talk about? Um. Well, let me see. I mean, just give me one sure. second. Pull up a calendar. See if you might get an exclusive announcement. Okay. So I want to exclusively announce yes. that Struggle Session will be doing a live <gasps> show. Our very first in Los Angeles. Yay. On on. Monday, November nineteenth, Monday night. Awesome. All the all the inf- all the information will be available at strugglesession.us um, or on our Twitter feed uh, slash struggle sesh. Uh, you'll be able. To, we'll have you know exclusive merchandise there. We'll have live show. We'll have an opening act. Wow. All times of good stuff. So make sure you know save the date. Save the dates. Uh, Monday, November nineteenth in Los Angeles. That resident. And, and just quickly, tell us about your th- this 31 Days of Horror thing you're doing. Oh, yeah. So this is second year running. Um, we just picked 31 horror movies that we liked, and we're kind of watching them and talking about them with our listeners and doing episodes on them. And we're actually going to have a special guest to come on and talk to us about the devil's backbone yes. and the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, that's me. Yes, Katie Halper is going to be on Struggle Session. Uh, it may be a bonus episode. I'm not, it's I'm okay. not I've sure done your yet. Regulars, you... So I, I won't yes. feel, I won't feel um, uh, you're, you're, friend you're, zoned, uh, bonus zoned. Your paywall content. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've, I've broken the paywall. Uh, Leslie, remind people where we can find you. Uh, Patreon.com slash Struggle Session at Leslie Lee III. Great. Gabe? Hey, what's up? You guys can find me at Gabe underscore Pacheco on Twitter. And I'm KT Helps, letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. And the hashtag for this is KT Helps Show, letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review us. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on Facebook. And Leslie, you were at one of our first live tapings. Speaking of live tapings. So you got to get back oh, I didn't... to New York. Yes, I do. I do. I do. Gotta get back anytime. Yeah. Anytime. Just give me a Leslie was a was a guest. We it was actually called the Burning Made Me White taping, and then you came back to to <laughs> another one and you uh, one of our famous karaoke after parties, which we have to do again. And you did. Uh, yes. Do 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 do. I did under pressure. Under pressure. I did under pressure. Didn't yes, you I also did do pressure. a Rolling Stone song like? Um, oh yeah, I miss you. I miss you. I miss, I miss you. you. See? Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's a coming full circle. We miss you. You have to come back. Oh, great. Yeah. I want to come back. Yeah. Awesome. I've been hanging out so long. I've been sleeping all alone. Lord, I miss you.